Okay, good morning. Do please keep that passage open. That would be great. On page 1079, John 12. Shall we pray together? Lord God, we do uh, thank you uh, for your word. And Lord, this morning we want to see Jesus uh, in this word for who he is. By your spirit, please would you speak to us through it uh, and challenge uh, and warm our hearts and minds, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a child, and one of the TV programs I used to uh, love in particular was a program called Banana Man. Anyone remember Banana Man? That's a relief, otherwise it would be a rubbish illustration. Um, but Banana Man was a normal uh, schoolboy called Eric. He was transformed into this muscled, caped superhero figure upon eating a banana. I've always hated bananas, so it was never going to work for me. But but we could ask, well, who is um, the real banana man? On the one hand, you've kind of got Eric, this seemingly normal, unimpressive person from 29 Acacia Avenue, normal schoolboy. On the other hand, banana man, this superhero, tight-fitting outfit, elusive, but always appears at the right moment, faster than any kind of bullet, more powerful than a space rocket. Who is the real persona when it comes to Banana Man. Well, unlike Banana Man, Jesus was a historical figure who walked the earth. But people do ask similar questions, don't they? Having looked through and seen his ministry, what he says, who is the real Jesus? And as as we approach Easter, we're starting to follow a short series in John's Gospel, as Richard was saying. Jesus has been in Bethany uh, a village outside Jerusalem, has been causing a big stir. And Jesus has demonstrated, on the one hand, astonishing power. So, so he's raised a dead man, Lazarus, uh, to life, in the tomb for four days, really dead, yet called out to life. And yet Jesus has also been weeping. Uh, we saw last week he allowed Mary to pour perfume uh, on his feet, wipe it with her hair. Uh, he's been speaking about his death on the horizon. There's that sense of normality, uh, humility, uh, weakness even. How do we make sense of the two different sides of Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? And that's a question that really comes to the fore uh, in this passage we're looking at this morning. This is an event that turns up uh, in all four Gospels, which is more than you can say about Christmas. So it is a significant event in the eyes of the gospel writers. John wants to get us uh, thinking. So we're going to look at this passage in uh, in two parts this morning. Firstly, the entry uh, of Jesus to Jerusalem. And then second, the responses responses of the different groups of people uh, to what they saw. So first, what about the entry uh, of Jesus? Do we see that Jesus entered Jerusalem as king? Look at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This is uh, Passover week. That's the context here. That's the feast referred to. So Jerusalem as a city would have been absolutely buzzing. That The population 
of the city would have doubled, trebled in size, be kind of pulsating. People would be out on the hills around the city camping. And word gets around, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. So in excitement, uh, the crowd heads out uh, to greet him. And these, these palm branches that I talked about were a symbol for Israel of great nationalistic uh, pride. You might remember the Scottish independence referendum in 2014 when you know, saltire flags seemed to be everywhere, didn't they? Every street corner, every rally. If you went to a political rally for an independent Israel, it is palm branches that they would be waving. So they are rolling out here, if you like, a red carpet uh, for Jesus. It's a symbol of power uh, for a king. Jesus is the king of Israel, coming victoriously to claim his royal throne in Jerusalem. But there may have been, there may have been the odd bystander who was, who was there watching this, this spectacular scene. He, he would have been thinking, Jesus is crazy. Out of his mind, does he know what is going on here? Because back in chapter 11, the chief priests were already getting worried about the stir Jesus was creating, his upstart popularity. And this triumphant entry, it threatens social disruption. The kind of tinderbox at Passover time, it could explode in the tension. Just Jesus realized the match he is setting to this tinderbox. But Jesus knows exactly uh, what he is doing with this entry. You may remember uh, from your own reading of John's Gospel that back in chapter 6, after Jesus has fed 5,000 people from a lunchbox, the crowd intended to come and make him king by force. What did Jesus do? He withdrew by himself. Or in chapter 7, Jesus entered Jerusalem not publicly, but he did it privately. And yet here we've got Jesus, haven't we? Dramatically, publicly, symbolically, entering Jerusalem at Passover on the first day of the great celebration of when God worked a mighty rescue of Israel through the shedding of blood, when the nation of Israel was set free. You can't, can you, get a more public or a more symbolic entrance than this. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. This this triumphal entry is Jesus accepting, taking his place at the centre of a coronation procession. It's a deliberate, a self-conscious fulfilment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9 that is recited uh, by John here in verse 15. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Zion just means Jerusalem. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. The crowd knew, the crowd knew that God had promised many times that he would send a king to to lead, to take care of his people, and they're convinced this is that day. And they're right. This is that anticipated day. This is God's king. Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. And yet there is, isn't there? What, what can we say? There's an anomaly uh, in this account. 
It's brown, it's furry, it's stubborn. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. Doesn't that change? That changes the whole dynamic, doesn't it? The, the crowd, you can imagine it, thronging, kind of pulsating uh, as Jesus is there. Here comes the king. And what does Jesus do? He sits on a donkey and probably slowly uh, trots in, as, as Jill was saying. You, you can sort of picture the, the energy slightly dissipating uh, from the crowd. What an anticlimax to their chanting and their euphoria. Donkeys don't really have the best uh, of reputations, do they? It's probably not helped by the miserable Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. I loathe Winnie the Pooh myself, but there we go. Uh, or, or the verbal diarrhea donkey in Shrek uh, more recently. Or perhaps just the way that the donkeys kind of meekly uh, surrender, submit to the humiliation of being kind of poked and pulled by, ch- by stroppy kids on Blackpool Beach. And a donkey is not the usual mode of transport, is it, for a king? If you look at King Solomon, what did he have? He had great horses, war horses, uh, to ride on. The queen today, she's got fleet of Rolls Royces. Jesus, he's got a donkey. Could God incarnate in Jesus Christ really ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? What is Jesus doing? This incident bears all the signs, doesn't it, of being quite a prearranged uh, incident. That's something that the other, other gospel writers fill out uh, in a bit more detail. Stage managed. So Jesus is not only claiming uh, to be the king and the Messiah, as Zechariah had foretold. He is also, isn't he, plainly declaring what kind of king uh, he came to be. He's probably publicly dramatizing, if you like, or illustrating uh, the king he'd come to be. That is a humble servant king. Humble servant king. Don't, don't misunderstand this, though. Jesus had come to be exactly the kind of king uh, that Zechariah had foretold. Triumphant in his deeds and his victory, but not full of macho, not full of bravado. This is Jesus, gentle, humble, riding on a donkey, coming into the city, weaponless. He's got nothing except the great weapon of love, proclaiming peace to the nations, claiming a universal kingdom. John wants to get us thinking, what do we make of this? Do you see how John sets out uh, the responses of three different groups of people uh, to to what is seen, just to help us get get our thinking straight on this? What are the responses, uh, secondly, to this entry? Do you see, first, there are the confused disciples, aren't there? Confused disciples. We've not heard much about them uh, for a while, since the beginning of the account involving Lazarus. How are they getting on? Look at verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. 
So, so at the time of the entry, the disciples, they couldn't join up the dots. They just didn't get it. I think John is saying here, isn't he, this is hard to understand. It's not easy to get your head round. Why would Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey? It's probably true, isn't it? There's some people today don't even get, get that far, get, even get to that question. So Jesus is just dismissed as that Jesus that they heard about as a kid. Humble, meek, met a loser's death. Or the cause of wars through the ages. Or an interesting, but slightly crackers, philosopher. Or not even given much of a moment's thought. Who really is the Jesus and the donkey? How do do the disciples come to understand Do you see, John tells us, doesn't he, there are two things that help them understand this. They understood after Jesus had been glorified. So so here we've got, haven't we, Jesus entering on this, this great wave of adulation, but that is not his glory. We have to look, don't we, to the end of the week to see Jesus' glory. We're far from an adulation-filled crowd. Jesus is alone, betrayed by one of his closest followers, deserted by his closest friends, humiliated, mocked, beaten by a crowd and soldiers, left on a cross to die in shame. All just a few days after this great entrance... And yet, on the cross, that is where Jesus was glorified. Because there on the cross, there is the victory of the king. So so if you like, after the cross, after the resurrection, with the benefit of, of hindsight, the disciples could look back. They could look back to the start of this week and think, you know, that donkey, that is not out of place. That was not a failed start to a faltering coup. It fitted precisely with what Jesus had come to do. The entry to Jerusalem is a preview, a kind of foreshadowing, a snapshot of what happens a few days later, where we see Jesus the King on the cross. But you see, it wasn't only the cross, was it? It wasn't only Jesus being glorified that helped them understand. You see, they also remembered the things that had been written about Jesus and done to him. That, that is a reference here to the, to the Old Testament scriptures, some of which John you know, recites for us here. So we've got the crowd, haven't we, in verse 13, uh, shouting, Hosanna. Uh, and that comes from, or is used in, uh, Psalm 118, where Hosanna literally means, save us, now. Save us now. And the crowd is probably thinking here, we want to be safe from Roman rule. We want political liberation. But as the events of the week unfold, it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus has something far more momentous in view. Psalm 118 goes on to speak about uh, sacrifices on the altar, and that is how Jesus will rescue 
his people. Not from political oppression, but from sin, through offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Hosanna, save us now. It's exactly what Jesus did, but exactly in the opposite way to what they expected, in the most costly way imaginable. If you want to read on after the service, the prophecy of Zechariah 9 also gives more clues because Zechariah goes on to prophesy how the king will achieve victory because of the blood of the covenant. So because of Jesus' death, his kingly rule of peace can spread throughout the earth. Jesus is the humble king who serves and suffers to provide for his people, to give them the life only he can give. So a donkey is absolutely appropriate. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're looking into or thinking about Christian things, can I urge you, take more than a superficial look at Jesus. Take more than a glance at him. We do love, don't we, to put people into into neat boxes. But Jesus doesn't fit, does he, into a neat box. Jesus is not just an insightful teacher. He's not a political liberator. He's not just an an inspiring example. He's not a deluded uh, misfit. He stands utterly alone. He is unique. Only in Jesus do we see this combination of ruling in power with serving in humility. Do we see that perfectly? For those of us who who are here that that are Christian, I guess that's most of us here, that there is a question here about, well, are are we following the real Jesus? Have we got the real Jesus in our hearts and minds? Sometimes we create, don't we, a a bit of a a Jesus that works for us. So we shave a bit, we modify a bit, we mould. So Jesus just suits a bit better who we want him to be for our agenda. We've got to keep digging, haven't we? Digging into the the pages of the Bible to to keep, keep fixed on the authentic, the glorious Jesus presented to us on our own, one-to-one, in the groups that we're in. That is how we'll keep Jesus at the forefront of our minds, the true Jesus. I think also it's true, isn't it, that the cross has got to be right at the centre of our understanding of of who Jesus is. I remember last year I had a conversation with a colleague at work uh, where I ended up um, explaining the cross to, to him. And as I, was think, as I was speaking, I was thinking, this sounds really odd. It just sounds weird. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to explain. It is difficult to understand in some ways. And I think because of that, we can just be tempted, can't we, to, to talk about anything but the cross. There's so much about Jesus that could be said but without going to the cross. Or, or even just to focus on the resurrection, which just seems a bit cleaner, you know, a nicer piece of news. 
But we've got to have confidence, haven't we? I've got to have confidence that, that it is the cross that people need to hear about. That is where the glory of Jesus is revealed. So it's at the foot of the cross that life is to be found. Eternal life. So, so the first group we've got are the disciples. Do you see, secondly, John points to the witnessing crowd. Do you see that? Look at verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they'd heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Do you see, do you you know how the crowd consists of two groups of people, doesn't it? So those who've been with Jesus when Lazarus was raised from the dead, and those who'd heard about, received the testimony uh, from those people who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. So, So this crowd is formed on account of that great miracle. Those who'd seen and believed, and then those who'd heard and believed. The raising of Lazarus is, is one of those key things in, in John's uh, gospel. He, he devoted the whole of chapter 11 uh, to Lazarus, and he wouldn't let, let us forget about it in chapter 12. So Lazarus keeps reappearing uh, as a name, and he reappears again here. But why is that? What, why does John keep bringing Lazarus up? Lazarus was one of, was one of only three people that Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, And it was a sign. That is what John calls it, doesn't he, in verse 18. It is a sign. A sign of the resurrection power of Jesus. John wants us to know that Jesus came to bring life, eternal life. Even death. Even death is subject to his authority. So it's a sign Uh, of the truth of the claim of Jesus. Uh, Back in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus did many great things, didn't he? he? He demonstrated his power over so many things, disease, demons, nature, the material universe, but greater more eloquent than any of those things is his power over death. It's true, isn't it? Because death is the great enemy of humanity. It's the one thing we can't conquer. It's relentless. It's inevitable. Someone once said that death is the most democratic institution in the world. In the end, it claims everyone. But Jesus has power over death. Only Jesus has power over death. The great claim of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life, it is authenticated as he raises Lazarus from the dead. It is sealed for eternity when Jesus himself rose from death. His his resurrection is set before us as the great expression of, of his power. All who trust in him will be raised to life. Do do you see how the picture is coming together that that John is painting, presenting of Jesus? 
Jesus is about power, but through weakness. And he's about life through death. It's great news to be shared. That is what this crowd had been doing, hadn't they? It's how they, how they grown as a crowd. I wonder, just this Easter, as we gather with friends, we gather with family, if we all shared the good news about Jesus with one person, just one person, that would be, that would be a great thing to do. Wouldn't it? Just think 200 plus people would hear the good news about Jesus if we did that. Who knows what effect that could have as a knock-on? Who knows what the multiplying effect could be? Well, God knows. But not everyone is happy, are they, finally? That's clear from the final group of people, the Pharisees. Do you see that in verse 19, finally? So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. It's fair to say, isn't it, the Pharisees are seriously hacked off uh, with what has gone on. They're a bit jealous. But do you pick up the irony, the kind of deep meaning to the words that they say here? This is getting us nowhere. That, 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 that is this stir Jesus is creating. It's not part of the plan. It's not what should be happening at the moment. And yet there's a a deeper meaning, isn't there? Because the Pharisees, with their words, they are rejecting Jesus. So they they speak of seeing, but they see nothing. And it gets them nowhere. They gain nothing. Because death awaits them. Same is true, isn't it, when they say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Passover week was the time to be uh, a religious leader. The Pharisees should be the centre of attention, given all the adulation, all the praise, the respect, the honour, the authority. And here is Jesus with the crowds flocking to him. At one level, it's a kind of thing about territory, isn't it? Jesus is trampling on their patch. And they're right, again, aren't they? With the coming of Jesus, our own kingdoms are under threat. If our aim in life is to live for ourselves, to put ourselves at the centre, for us to be number one, then Jesus is a threat. Because he is the king who claims and demands first allegiance. But there is also, isn't there, a deeper meaning to their words, because they're speaking here also about, about the mission of Jesus here. The whole world is going after Jesus, because not only is Jesus king of Israel, he is king of all people, of whatever nationality. Whoever you are, wherever you are from, whatever background you have, you can enjoy living under the rule of this king if you will believe and trust in him. It's no accident that immediately following uh, these verses, John records how the Greeks, how the non-Israelites, come and say, we would like to see Jesus. The whole world is going 
after this king. We have seen Jesus in these verses. This is the one in whom the gospel, the good news, comes to perfect fulfillment. In Jesus, we see power through weakness. We see glory through suffering. We see life through death. Let's hold that picture. Let's keep that picture at the forefront of our minds this week and into Easter. Shall we pray? Lord God, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. But Lord, we praise you for the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. We praise you most of all for his power uh, over death. Lord God, that he died on the cross in our place to take our sin. And he rose to new life. Oh God, what great news that is, a promise of new life, eternal life, for all who will believe in him. Lord God, we pray this this Easter as we uh, think uh, on these passages and others in our own time, that you would put Jesus at the forefront of our mind, that we would see him more deeply for who he is, trust him more fully with our lives, and speak of him more comprehensively to people that we see, know, and love. In Jesus' name. Amen.